On April 2nd, after killing three fellow soldiers, Sergeant Ivan Lopez, an American veteran of the Iraq War, died by suicide at Fort Hood in Texas. The following week, President Barack Obama traveled to Fort Hood and addressed a memorial service. As Commander-in-Chief, I'm determined that we will continue to step up our efforts to reach our troops and veterans who are hurting, to deliver to them the care that they need, and to make sure we never stigmatize those who have the courage to seek help. The 9-11 generation, as the president called them, has borne the battle not just at the front, but at home. The numbers, incomplete, tell the story. In the last two years, more veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan have died by suicide than have died on the battlefield. The steady beat, one person a day, affects the entire extended family of the military. Those who die by suicide are overwhelmingly male, white, and under the age of 40. The statistics give a scale of what's happening, but they do not begin to answer the question that hovers over every death. Why? In a prosperous suburb of Chicago, Andy and Julianne Weiss are washing up after lunch before showing a visitor around their home. Their youngest son, Danny, a lieutenant in the Army Rangers, died by suicide two years ago. He was 25 years old. We'll never know exactly why Danny died of suicide. We don't say killed himself. We say died of suicide because you die of cancer, you die of a heart attack, you die of depression, you die of moral injury, you die of these things. You don't willingly go out and kill yourself. All parents keep some memorabilia after their children have grown up and moved on. So have the Weisses, although with Danny's belongings, it takes on a different meaning. And it becomes a bit of a shrine here. Well, show, show me here, we'll keep going on in here. We walk past my map of Afghanistan. So the Argandab Valley was, was here. Here's Kandahar, and this is the Argandab Valley. My son was deployed here two times, and here in Paktika. And he was deployed here with the 173rd and then moved over here. Right. And in the Ranger Regiment, he was here again in Sharon in Paktika. The Rangers are a branch of U.S. Special Forces. This is graduation from Ranger School. A proud day. Out of four awards, Danny won three. As the, the honor graduate of the class, highest academic achievement, and the physical, physical training. The, the fourth he couldn't win because it was for a female. <laughs> so just your typical high-achieving Jewish boy from the yeah. suburbs, except it's the military and not Harvard. Absolutely. And uh, in fact, that, that irony is yeah. not lost either. America has an all-volunteer military who joins the reasons why are ferried. So here we are. We're in his room. What catches my eye immediately is... Um, a picture of Paul Newman, a poster for Cool Hand Luke. He liked that character. Julianne pointed to a boxed set of The Office, the original BBC series. Ricky Gervais and Carl Pilkington. Yeah, those, those <laughs> love them. As well. That Danny found great comfort in it, that the absurdity of the world could be laughed at. Danny because... had a wonderful laugh. I can still hear his laugh. Yeah, yeah Cool Hand Luke was a part of the, 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 the over-romantic thing that can happen, that he loved iconoclast characters who were anti-authority, and yet he joined the army. On the family piano, lid closed, was sheet music for the song Danny Boy. I asked the Weisses about that. 
our son is Danny, and that song always scared the living shit out of us. And now uh, it. Uh, Why did it scare the the shit out of you? Oh, because we knew exactly what it was. It was a lament of a World War One father singing to his son who didn't come home. And I remember speaking to Danny about it because of uh, the obvious connection of Danny's name and, and the fact that we knew the risks. And we knew the risks. And each time he was deployed overseas, we were very on edge. We were very nervous and uh, downright afraid. And every time we'd hear in the news of a helicopter crash or a disaster or a loss or this or that, you, you go into hyper alert. And who would have known that we would lose Danny while he was stateside? I mean, that was uh, the, the biggest surprise when they came to the door that day, the dress blues, knocking on the door. And I look out through the thing and see them, and I go, well, what the hell are they doing here? And then I realize, oh, no, wait, he's, he's a ranger. He could be anywhere. So the door knocks, and these two guys are there. Yeah. And you're thinking, yeah. My first thought was they made a mistake. We let them in, and they tell us very quickly that Danny's dead that uh, a gunshot went to the head. I remember just literally the world spinning, not knowing what to do, watching my wife collapse, get up, then unsteady, knowing that I had to get my eldest son, and so he heard from me first, grabbing the one chaplain and driving into the city to get my eldest son, while my wife was here. So I was here with the other officer while Andy was going to get Danny's brother. And um, I was just kind of walking around in circles, not knowing what to do. And suddenly this officer just started crying like a little boy. And so I immediately, I was hugging him and trying to comfort him. He had never done that before. He had never informed a family before. The answer to the existential why is a hard one for loved ones to find. The answer to the medical why is maybe a little clearer. I'm Jonathan Shea. I am a psychiatrist by trade. For 20 years, Jonathan Shea worked with veterans of the Vietnam War. He formulated many of the working theories on post-traumatic stress and the particular injuries to the mind that the experience of combat can bring. For him, the path that leads to suicide can be explained physiologically, and it starts with sleep. Sleep is fuel for the frontal lobes of the brain. And when you're truly out of gas in your frontal lobes because of extreme sleep loss, your frontal lobes go offline. It's like they've been surgically removed. And this is a catastrophe because in the frontal lobes, what's, what the frontal lobes run, their business is ethical self-restraint, emotional self-restraint, and a whole raft of what are known as the executive functions of the brain. Being able to do things like say, well, that was then, but this is now, and they're different. If you're out of gas in your frontal lobes, you can't do that. The way sleep loss contributes to suicide is multi-multi-factorial. For many people who have been to war, especially when they've been through a long, close fight, they carry stuff on their conscience. 
they carry experiences that make them feel contaminated. And everybody thinks of suicide, especially since these are men who know guns well, and there's no more efficient way to do yourself in than with a firearm. And so everybody thinks about it, and it's often an ethical sentiment, an ethical commitment or feeling that restrains people. And sleep loss greatly impairs ethical self-restraint. So you want to off yourself, and in a well-rested state, you may think, well, no, I, I have two children now, and what a raw deal for them that's going to be, and I'm not going to do it because of them. And if sufficiently sleep-deprived, that goes completely down the drain. When Rebecca Morrison's husband, Ian, came back from Iraq around Christmas in 2011, he encountered the sleep problem. A graduate of West Point, Captain Morrison flew 70 Apache helicopter missions from a base in Tikrit. Right after Valentine's Day, I um, started to notice that he was struggling a little bit and he wasn't sleeping. It was his main concern. And um, towards the early parts of March, we uh, went on a spring break vacation. On that trip, he told me that he hadn't slept in like a, a week. Um, but we talked about it and, you know, we decided he was going to, you know, we were going to eat better, which he already ate pretty healthy, but we were going to work on that, going to keep working out. And then um, we'd, you know, keep going to church. We'd pray, we'd read the Bible. And then he would, we'd, you know, reassess after a couple days. And, and so over the course of the next three days, Ian, you know, um, tried to get help in different ways, and nothing really, nothing really worked. Nothing really stuck. I was teaching elementary school and also going to graduate school at night to be a counselor. And um, on Wednesday, uh, March twenty-first, I uh, we talked on the phone. We saw each other in the morning, obviously, before I went for school, and um, talked on the phone throughout the day. And after school, we talked on the phone and texted, and then um, I was leading group therapy that night, and so I had my phone on silent in my pocket, and um, Ian called me, uh, but I, did, I wasn't able to answer it. And um, uh, when I came home from school, I found him uh, in our bedroom, dead by gunshot wound. Yeah, your whole world just crumbles. Neither Captain Ian Morrison nor Lieutenant Danny Weiss fits a layman's picture of the kind of soldier who dies by suicide. But psychiatrist Jonathan Shea points out that is because people don't understand the kind of injury that combat can inflict on the mind. In his phrase, a moral injury. One of the characteristics of moral injury is that it impairs the capacity for trust when your capacity for trust is really devastated, it's replaced not by a vacuum where there's nothing there, it's replaced by an active expectancy of harm, exploitation, and humiliation. And that just devastates the capacity for a flourishing life. 
and in this state, suicide is a heightened possibility. Nevertheless, moral injury, like any other wound, can be treated, says Shea. I have seen people recover, but it doesn't depend on people like me with all the alphabet soup after their name. It depends on other veterans. Peers, 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 peers. Peers are indispensable in recovering from moral injury. Indeed, around the U.S., former veterans are often all that stands between their comrades and the dark decision to die. You'll see the American flags around. Uh, not only are we, of course, patriotic, uh, but you know, they, they serve a function, and that is if you're a peer and you're on a line and you need some support, you can pull that flag up and wave it to get the supervisor or a clinician's attention or another peer if they're tied up, and they can come over with you, and they'll write a note, ask this question, and they, you know, they work together. It's a team effort, just like we do in the military. It's all, it's all about team and about you know, working together. In an office park in central New Jersey, retired General Mark Graham shows a visitor around the Vets for Warriors call center, a model of ex-servicemen helping their peers in all the crises they might face, especially suicide. Hi, I got a call. I'll be back. General Graham took me around to meet some of his peer team. Jada's one of our peers. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Jada's Michael. Hi, Jada. Hi, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. So, um, when did you start working here? Uh, as soon as it opened, uh, December 2011. Mm-hmm. What made you want to come? wanted to give back to my peers. Mm-hmm. So I saw the opportunity and applied. What's that like when you get a call and it's someone who's clearly in a crisis that has led them to consider suicide? It depends. If they have just have thoughts but don't want to act upon it, then it's just about talking to them and bringing them down. But if they're like actively holding a weapon or taking pills, it's automatic transfer to NVCL, the National Veterans Crisis Line. Since its founding in 2007, the National Veterans Crisis Line has taken 1.1 million calls and claims to have directly been involved in 35,000 life-saving interventions. The peers working at Vets for Warriors come from all branches of the service and all ranks and all kinds of experience. The main thing they have in common is this. They want to give something back to their fellow servicemen, often because they themselves have been helped through hard times. That's what John, a Marine who served two tours of duty in Iraq and one in Afghanistan, told me. I'm not going to lie, I'm I'm one of those veterans who kind of fell through the cracks, you know, especially coming back from from deployments and everything like that. You know, just don't want to see any any other soldier or, or any kind of veteran fall, go through certain things that I've gone through. I did the thing that most military personnel would do when, when they're feeling kind of down and under the in the dumps. You know, I drank a lot. Um, that was actually one of my big downfalls was that I just didn't have the peer support to tell me that there is a way out of this thing. So instead of me going up, I ended up digging myself deeper and deeper in a hole. And I'm not going to lie, I, I, I thought about uh, going the easy way out a couple times. But there's a time when I actually made a promise to my mom that I was going to be okay and I was going to, you know, I'm an only child. I'm not going to put my mom through all that kind of stuff. 
If the U.S. Army is slowly getting to grips with the suicide risks its soldiers face, in part it's due to Mark Graham. In his last command before retirement at Fort Carson in Colorado, he initiated several programs to deal with the crisis. We were seeing an increase in suicides, and we had some homicides uh, there as well, and I knew we had to do more. And you could just feel the, the atmosphere that uh, service members were, were struggling. I mean, I could see it in their faces, talking to them. You know, I would talk to them before they deployed, when they came back, while, their you know, while they were gone. I would you know, talk to families, and, and you could just feel that they were struggling. So one of the things I did was start a hotline, a commander's hotline, uh, that someone answered the phone 24 hours a day. You ask someone if they're thinking about suicide, uh, you care for them. Uh, one is by listening to them and trust. And then you don't just say, yeah, you need to go get help. You actually take them. Hey, let, let me go with you. Let me get you to care. Let me get you to the hospital. Let me get you to the, to the mental health providers. Because a lot of them are struggling with anxiety and depression and other forms of mental illness. Graham is an artillery officer by training, but he comes by his interest in mental health in general, and suicide in particular, from tragic personal experience. His younger son, Kevin, killed himself during the final phases of his officer training course while at university. He was a scholarship student, was going to, wanted to be an Army doctor, was going to be the cadet battalion commander the next year, had a lot going for him. Kevin was very bright. Kevin was just wonderful young man. You'd like him. I mean, you'd like Kevin. Just a great guy. And uh... A year later, Kevin's older brother, Jeff, also an officer, was killed in Fallujah. The Grams have found a way to deal with the grief by becoming powerful advocates for understanding what they call the invisible wound. And part of their advocacy is honest self-criticism. My wife and I say, you know, when we speak is, you know, we were part of the stigma. You know, we were proud. We thought, you know, our son have depression? Oh, what? 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 No way. I mean, because we didn't know enough about it 11 years ago. We just, you know, we didn't. And that's, we can't get our son back. I mean, I tell people often, you know, I, I didn't know you could die from being too sad. Uh, I mean, everyone gets sad. I mean, you know, I get sad. Everyone gets sad. But I didn't realize that, that Kevin was sad more and more often and, and deeper and deeper sadness. And uh, we, we didn't see it. We just, we just didn't understand enough about it. Beyond peer-to-peer -peer help, vets are leading public advocacy campaigns. The IAVA, Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America, is constantly lobbying Congress hard for help in pushing back the suicide surge. We're losing more veterans to suicide than to combat. The IAVA was founded by Iraq War veteran Paul Rykoff. Here in the United States, 2.6 million men and women have served in Iraq and Afghanistan since 9-11. We know that a minimum of 20% of folks coming home from Iraq and Afghanistan will have a mental health injury of some kind, post-traumatic stress disorder or depression. We know the unemployment rate in our membership is consistently around 9% or higher. Uh, and we know that the bureaucracy is still broken. Uh, almost 400,000 veterans are stuck waiting for their disability claims from the VA. So the scope is tremendous. The urgency is very high, and, and it's literally a matter of life and death. Reichhoff served as a rifle company lieutenant in Iraq and has lost close friends to suicide in recent years. I asked him if there was something different about the kind of combat stresses soldiers are facing in these long wars of the 21st century. There have always been veteran suicides. I mean, all the way back to Roman times. Uh, undoubtedly, there have been 
veterans who had untreated mental health injuries who, who eventually died by suicide. And, and I think what I hear from other veterans is we have been here before, and why haven't we learned the lessons? When folks died by suicide after World War II, it wasn't as well documented. There was a lot of shame around mental health injuries and especially around suicide. And now with digital media, if someone dies by suicide, we'll know within minutes. Um, so I think it's always been a problem, but there is a dramatic increase in the number of suicides that have been happening in the last few years in our community because more folks are coming home. You know, they're leaving the connection of the military. And, and a mental health expert, a friend of mine, once said to me, you know, Paul, it's not about a silver bullet medical program that's going to stop suicide. The thing that stops suicide is connection and hope. And that's what our veterans feel they're lacking when they come home right now. They lose the connection to the military, they lose that sense of community, and they don't know that there's help out there. In searching for an answer to why, it's useful to look for a comparison to the British experience. British soldiers have fought in the same wars, yet suicide rates among British veterans are actually coming down. British military psychiatrist surgeon Captain John Sharpley of the Royal Navy points to several key differences in the American experience of recent war. Over the last 10 years, we have noticed that our rates of mental illness, particularly PTSD, uh, are different to our US colleagues. Uh, the US colleagues seem to have a higher rate. Now, there are a number of possible reasons for this. Um, there are age and other demographic factors, uh, differences between our two uh, militaries. Uh, there are differences in the way we deploy people, so we deploy for less time, so generally tours of six months length, and the Americans have been deploying for 12-month tours. There is another difference between the US and the UK, certainly in the Iraq conflict, which is that the combat exposure of the US was higher than the UK. But the biggest reason, Sharpley suggests, for the disparity in the U.S. and U.K. suicide figures is the means by which veterans kill themselves. I do know that the U.S. means is quite different to the U.K. And the means of suicide in the, in the U.S. that's the biggest problem is firearms. Uh, and that's much different with us. And that's probably a much more important factor explaining possible differences in suicide rates. But there are more reasons for the difference. For my generation of veterans, for the last 10 years we've been at war, and America's been watching American Idol. IAVA founder Paul Rykoff. Less than one half of 1% of the American population has served in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's never been so few people serving under some, so, such extreme circumstances for so long. This disconnect really fuels a sense of isolation and I think contributes to the, to the high rate of suicide and, and unless we get a handle on it, a rate that will continue to increase. Rebecca Morrison echoes Reichhoff. Since losing her husband to suicide, she has gone to work with TAPS, Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, yet another Veterans Doing It For Themselves program. She has heard similar views from surviving families. Their testimonies remind her of her husband's feelings in the weeks after he came home. He mentioned to me a couple times that he wished he was back on deployment, and you know that broke my heart. And he said, well, I don't mean to be away from you. I mean, because it was so regulated and I knew what to expect. He had a really hard time understanding how like you could just go to Walmart or you could just you know walk outside and take the dog for a walk, and there's all these people living life 
and yet that's going on over there. Recognizing the growing crisis, the Department of Defense opened a suicide prevention office in 2011. But prevention efforts, in the military at least, are fragmented. Jackie Garrick is director of the Defense Suicide Prevention Office. Suicide prevention is a public health issue. We work quite a bit with the Department of Veterans Affairs, the Department of Health and Human Services. And what we know is that to prevent suicide, we want to deal with the problem-solving skills, the decision-making process, the impulsivity issues. And the best way to deal with suicide is for somebody never to be suicidal because we've provided them the community support and the um, skills necessary to deal with the stressors and strains of life. She doesn't think that multiple long-term deployments are a decisive factor in explaining why there has been a suicide surge. Psychiatrist Jonathan Shea disagrees. These wars were done on the cheap. From the point of view of personnel, the deployment tempo and the operating tempo were absolutely murder. And people were just used up, burnt through. In the end, though, generalizations can't tell the story of the injuries to the heart and mind, the soul of each individual soldier. Lieutenant Danny Weiss left behind clues to how he changed in the form of journals kept through his three deployments, journals his father Andy has poured over, trying to understand. So the first is from very early. It's from January of 2006. He was first arriving in, in Afghanistan. I look at the dirt on my hands and try to think of something worth thinking about. But I feel the cold and I think of nothing. I see the mountains, pale with snow and fog. They fade into the sky as if they're trying to escape reality. As contrasted to this in his later deployments, his last deployments, the fucking smell of animals, living and dead, of hay and dirt, hot and cold, days of sweat bled into the earth, of cooking fires and warming fires, that burning smell, that smoke, of all these dead and gone, but never washed away. But even having access to Danny's private thoughts still doesn't answer for his parents. Why? I think I've already accepted that we will never know why. And I think that's what you have to do is just accept that because otherwise you'll just go insane. Yeah, I mean, you, so, um, but we just uh, know that we'll love him forever in our hearts and you keep holding on to that and you celebrate the life that he lived. I cry every day, every day. And I expect that that will continue my entire life. That I'll have a moment, a scent, a smell, a feeling, a th some thought pass through my head and it'll bring me to grief and it'll bring me to weeping and it'll bring me to tears. And in the end, that's part of who I am now. And I lean into my grief with all my might like I'm leaning into a cold wind and if it's really brutal, I turn my back to it for a moment 
and I get that dark thought out of my head because those are the ones that are really dangerous. There you have it. The why. The why not. <laughs>